0: Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. We've been doing a series here called A Transformed Life. And today we're going to continue in that series. And my message is, is simply this. Jesus equals a new creation and a new life. And what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of look at the macro of the fact that when Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, He actually set something in motion that's going to affect all of creation and has already begun to affect all of creation down to the very molecular structure of creation. Jesus is changing it, recreating it, renewing it, but also that he started in human hearts. He started with a seed in you and in me. Those of you that know Jesus Christ, you know that something has been implanted in you of him and that you've never been the same ever since you encountered him. If you're a note taker, my first note is a simple one. My first point, I should say, is a simple one. And here it is. Get ready, note takers. I see all your pens down on the paper. Just just kidding. I know that not many of you are note takers anymore. Point number one, when Jesus rose again, he started a new creation. When Jesus rose again, he started a new creation, and the reason this is important is because most of us, especially in North American Christianity, when we think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, we, we make it very personal, and that's not a bad thing, but if we leave it there, we miss out on God's vision for his world. If we see faith as being primarily Jesus and I, Jesus and me, and him changing me and working in me, but what happens outside of me is kind of up to him. And we don't recognize that actually Jesus is changing everything in all of creation, and it begins with a human heart, that he's the one who's going to renew creation and when we get a macro vision and then move inwardly and we, we look at our own lives, we see where he wants to take us, it gives us something to live for that goes beyond just our own life. Because I think we need a vision that's bigger than our own life. Amen? And, and you know, after you live a while, you see that when you're young, it's really about you. And the longer you live, you start realizing that that life that's just really about me, not only does it end up being empty, And incredibly selfish, but it's boring. It's a boring life to live for yourself. But when you start to see something bigger than your own life and you get a hold of that, it really helps you live more effectively, more unto him. So my uh, key text for this particular point is 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to look at verses 22 and 45. Now, how many of you love the Bible? We're going to talk about that later. Okay, so listen, if you've never read 1 Corinthians 15, or if you've read it and just kind of passed through it real quick, here's a little assignment for you. This week, read 1 Corinthians 15 slowly. It's powerful. It's one of the most insightful and powerful chapters in the whole of the Bible. For in 1 Corinthians 15, we learn about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and why it's central to our faith. The fact that we are going to be resurrected, that that's going to happen in our lives, we're going to experience a bodily resurrection. And lastly, that the resurrection is going to actually work in all of creation and the planet and everything in the planet, the heavens and the earth are going to be renewed one day because Jesus rose from the dead and set something in motion that's going to touch everything in all of creation. That's what you see in 1 Corinthians 15. So, let's look at verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, if you use the Bible to interpret the Bible, which is what we're supposed to do, we learn that the last Adam is Jesus. Verse 40, excuse me, 22 shows us that. In Adam, everybody died. In Jesus, everything and everyone will be made alive. See, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and his command, they brought all of creation down with them. Sin spread to us and through us, bringing pain and destruction into our world. Most of the evil that's in our world is created and carried out by us. I want you to think about that. Jesus began the work of restarting creation when he died and rose again. Creation is being remade one person at a time. When Christ returns, he will complete what he began over 2,000 years ago. All things will be made new. So here's the vision of the Bible. Here's kind of an overview. If we're going to go Genesis to Revelation, here's what happens. God creates everything. He makes a man and a woman who are his image bearers. He places them in a beautiful garden, and he, he in effect says, continue the garden. I've made you gardeners. I want you to expand it. I want you to grow it. I want you to fill the earth with the garden. I've given you everything you'll ever need. You have dominion. Everything that's in the air and on the earth and in the water, everything everywhere is under your dominion. Now go and make the earth a garden. Go and continue. I've made you gardeners. Do what I've created you to do. And then we know a serpent comes in and what we call the fall happens. Adam and Eve disobey and they sin and, and they fall. But what's what's really profound is when they fall, all of creation falls with them. The earth is cursed. It begins to groan and yearn for redemption. It's asking God to save it. You may not realize that. Romans 8 shows us that the earth itself is asking God, crying out to God. In fact, the Greek language is the the very creation is on tiptoes looking for Jesus to restore it. And so if you want to know why everything is shaking, why there are earthquakes and tsunamis, why weather patterns are destructive, why everything in the world seems to be rocking and reeling, it's all the result of the curse that fell on the earth because of one man and one woman's Sin. And the good news is that when Jesus began by rising from the dead to reverse that curse as the last Adam, he started what we could call the regenesis of creation. He began to renew it. And the goal of God in the end, at the very end, in the revelation, in the apocalypsis, what do we see? We see a garden, a beautiful city, actually, that's a garden city. We see a river like the rivers in Genesis. We see precious metals and gold and silver and stones. We see all these things coming together and everything that was in Genesis is in Revelation but more, bigger, greater, more beautiful, more comprehensive, filling all things So we see that God is taking us somewhere. And when we live with a vision of the overall picture and dream of God, what God wants to do when it's all complete, it helps us to live in the present better. See, we start to see that what I'm doing right now counts. If one man's sin can curse the earth and bring brokenness, Christ's resurrection and us following in His train every righteous act, every act of love, every deed we do in obedience, everything. We don't realize it, but it's sowing into the earth. It's sowing into creation. It's sowing into humanity, the restoration of all things. That's why what you do right now counts for eternity you're actually setting things in motion. motion. What you're doing in your job, what you're doing at home, what you're doing with your children, mommies with their little ones, daddies with their little ones, what you do when you do the right thing on your job, when everybody else is doing the wrong thing, all of it is a seed that is actually working toward the restoration of creation. It really is. It counts. It matters. I mean, Jesus said that when we stand before the Lord... (laughs) Every idle word will be brought up. All of it matters. All of it counts. Am I talking to anybody? So I've prepared a little comparison here of the old creation versus the new creation. And I just want to show you that after the fall, God in Christ has begun to restore. I want you to see the comparison. We're going to look at basically seven points side by side. And this is only my first point, by the way, so we will finish when, before Jesus comes back, I promise you. Okay, so in Genesis 2 and 3, we see this, we see, and, and then in, in the Gospels in the New Testament, Ma, uh, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 19 and 20. No, we're not going to read them all, I'm just going to give you an overview, but this is, I want you to see the comparison between, between the two creations, the old creation, the new creation. Here's the old creation. The old creation had a place called the Garden of Eden, right? But Jesus comes out or is buried in a garden tomb. Have you ever correlated those things, put them together? Everything starts in a garden, and they're expelled from the garden. In the new creation, it also started in a garden. Jesus was buried in a garden, in a tomb in that garden, okay? And then Adam was formed and breathed into by God. Adam was, uh, I don't know if you ever noticed this before, but he was created outside of the garden. And you could say that Adam's middle name was mud because basically God took some dirt. I don't know if he spit on it or used a little bit of the river water, but he formed and shaped a man. He breathed into him. He inflated him with the life of God and both the bios Life that flows through our blood and the Zoe life of God that gives fellowship and connection to God went into him and placed him in a garden and Adam was alive to God and alive to his world, right? And then we see after Jesus rose from the dead, he was raised by, according to the Scripture, the power of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is always breath, life. So the Spirit brings Jesus back from death unto life out of a garden tomb. And then we see Adam and the woman are placed in the garden and God calls them to be gardeners. And he wants that gardening to spread to creation. He wants them to beautify the world, to cultivate the world, to to renew the world with all that he's given them. And then what happens with Jesus? Well, Jesus has an encounter right after he's raised from the dead with Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene turns to him and thinks he's a gardener because he is. He's the great gardener, and he's regardening the world. He's recreating the world. And then we continue. There's a serpent, this character, this Satan, and there's sin, and there's separation, and there's death, what we call the fall. Theologians call the fall. And then we we see in Genesis 3 that God prophesies that the seed of the woman, that a child that will come from the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. And we know that when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, according to the New Testament, interpreting that text, that he crushed the power of Satan. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says that through death, he destroyed him. who had The power of death, that is the devil. So we see over and over again, whatever happened in the fall is renewed and reversed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And then the earth is cursed, and it falls, and there are earthquakes that show that fall. And then in the garden, upon the resurrection of Jesus, there's an earthquake. And this earthquake signals a change. Even the earth is saying, yes, he's alive. The one who's come to redeem us, he's alive. And the earth seemed to almost live in, a resu- in, I mean, in, a, in an earthquake unto the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he's Lord not only of people, but Lord of the earth. He's the king of the earth. And then what happens? Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. And an angel angels bar the way, flaming swords. You can't come back in here. You've left paradise. You can't stay there because sin has corrupted paradise. If you stay there, you have to be removed. And now there's an empty tomb and there's angels sitting in the tomb and they're inviting people in. That's what happens after the resurrection. Peter and John and The women come to the tomb and they find some angels there and Jesus is risen from the dead and the angels are like, hey, come on into the garden tomb and let me show you that the place that used to be death is now life. The place we correlate to death has now become the place where new life issues from. And then we see in Genesis 2 and 3 that it begins with life and perfection and wholeness and shalom and beauty and it ends with death and the fall and curses but with jesus what begins with death and curses he who hangs on a tree is cursed ends with resurrection life and ascension to the right hand of the father ruling and reigning and saying The earth is my footstool, and I'm going to renew it, and I'm going to fix it, and everything broken is going to be brought back together, and everything crooked is going to be made straight, and every cursed molecule, every bit of breath, everything in creation that has taken on the attributes of the fall are going to begin to take on the attributes of resurrection life. And so when we see that, when we step back and we understand the big plan of God, we see that What He's doing in us counts. It matters. Amen? Let's continue this theme. Jesus, when He rose from the dead, He breathed new life into His creation. He started again, as I already said earlier, kind of the breathing of new life into that which was cursed and fallen. Look at John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. It says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, very important language, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Why did he say that? Because he'd been crucified on a Roman cross. They'd watched him die. They'd watched him bleed out. They watched his face be ripped. They watched his face be beaten. They saw a crown of thorns put on his head and a reed smack that crown of thorns over and over again until it pierced his skull. He had bled out. He'd been beaten by a cat of nine tails whip. He was on that cross, a giant piece of meat bleeding out and dying. They'd watched it happen to him. They watched him breathe his last. They watched him say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. They watched it happen. They watched his body give up his last breath. They saw him taken from the cross and put into a borrowed tomb. They knew he was dead. They saw the tomb rolled in front of it. They knew he was dead, and now they were afraid. They were hiding. All of their hopes, all of their dreams, everything they'd ever thought about their future was dead now in the person of Jesus Christ. They had hitched their wagon to him, and now he was dead and it was over, and they're in a room hiding, and Jesus, with the doors locked, Jesus shows up. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Why are the first words out of Jesus' mouth, mouth, peace be with you? Well, I'll tell you why, if you're sitting in a room afraid, and you're expecting somebody to kick a door down, and all of a sudden, Jesus is there. He didn't come through the door, he just appeared. You're gonna be like, ah! right? And then after you do that, he's going to be like, peace. That's what happened. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So he's like, I'm real. I'm not a ghost. I want you to know that. Look. Remember, his hands were pierced by nails. My side, a Roman soldier, put a sword in there. I just want you to see it's really me. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, I, I love how the Bible is so understated. You know as well as I do, they were more than glad. Yeah. Imagine the, emo- the emotions going on inside of them. Let's be real. On one hand, they're ready to cry, on the other hand, they're ready to laugh hysterically. They're like, ah, yeah, ah, Jesus! <laughs> they're ruined. They don't know what to do. He's alive. And then Jesus said to them, and I want you to see this, this is really power. He said to them again, peace be with you. Because they're like, ah, Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. Yeah. And so he says, peace. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold Forgiveness for many, it is withheld. Now, this is profound. He he's showing himself. I don't know if you're catching this, he's equating himself with the God who is Yahweh, who took Adam and breathed into him and placed him in the garden. He's equating himself with that God. And he's breathing on them saying, receive the Holy Spirit. And the language to a Jew, the language would have been very understandable. This is the beginning of a new creation. This is the start of something new. And then he shows us that the foundation of this new creation is forgiveness. See, the foundation of the last creation was God's creation event, but then the fall and sin came in. And now he's showing them the way back is forgiveness. The way back is what I did on the cross, and it's now made it possible for you to no longer be bound by the power of your sin, nor to bind others to the power of their sin, but to forgive. You you think about it. Adam was formed at the end of the sixth day in the old creation. The new creation community is formed at the end of the first day, which in Hebrew ideals, that's the eighth day, the day of new beginnings. The old creation grew primarily by biological and familial growth. The new creation grows by being sent as Jesus was sent and by being filled by the Holy Spirit. So the new creation happens when we go out and we live and we speak good news. And the seed of that good news, empowered by the breath of the Holy Spirit, goes into the human heart and regenerates it it, and gives human beings a new beginning in God. The new creation, excuse me, Jesus breathed on the disciples as God breathed into Adam. The breath of God brings the new creation forth, and the new creation begins with the forgiveness of sins. Sin caused the old creation to fall. Forgiveness causes the new creation to grow and to rise, to come back to life. I love what Augustine said. He was one of the early church fathers who had a profound impact on theology. In faith, hope, and charity, he said this, the omnipotent God, primal power of the world, being himself supremely good, could not permit anything evil in his works were he not so all-powerful and good as to be able to bring good even out of evil. So, God knowing the risks of creating, knowing that when you give people free course, when you let people choose to love or not to love, to obey or not to obey, Had already set things in motion, knowing the profound evil that would infect all of creation. He had already put things in motion. Whereas the day will come when we will look back through time and we will see, He will show it to us. We will see that even the most twisted, perverted, and wicked things to ever happen on planet Earth or be done to us will have been taken and redeemed. God will find a way to put His hand into it and bring good out of evil and righteousness out of evil. And make it beautiful. Bring beauty out of ashes. So that takes me to my last point. Oh, I'm good on time too. What's this new creation life like in us? Let's make it personal. What's it look like? What's the evidence of new creation in us? And I think this is an important question. I want to start by saying this. I want to be really clear, but the Bible regularly tells us to examine ourselves. By the way, it very rarely ever tells us to examine others. You hear people sometimes say, you know, hate the sin, but love the sinner. But the scriptural message is more like hate your own sin and love the sinner, including yourself. Right, so that's, that's more like the, the biblical picture. But here we are, we, we are called many times to look at ourselves. The Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians said, examine yourselves and see if you be in the faith. Now, what I want to say to you, it's really important, I'm not going to talk to you, in the next few minutes I'm going to talk about evidence of new creation. But it's not so that we can get caught up in works-based righteousness, It's not so you can go out and try to do these things in order to be okay with God. See, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've put trust in Him, you're okay with God. And now the evidence of that life will flow out of you because you're a lover, you're family. Amen? Amen. You know this text, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. We've been reading it the last few weeks. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ is a new creation. It can be she is a new creation too. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, so that's our experience. That's our reality. We are new creation people. I mean, think about this. Lee Eklov shares this story. In January 2008, a story made the rounds about a 15-year-old girl in Australia named Demi Lee Brennan. Brennan became the world's first known transplant patient to change blood types from O-negative to O-positive, taking on the immune system of her organ donor. It had never happened before that we're aware of. At first, the doctors assumed someone had made a mistake because it's always been assumed that a change like that can't happen. Now they say she's a one in six billion miracle. The blood stem cells in Brennan's new liver invaded her body's bone marrow, taking over her entire immune system. She now has an entirely different kind of blood, blood that welcomes life rather than carrying death. It's like my second chance at life, Brennan says. Something similar happens to us when we ask Jesus to save us. Even though he remains a human being like us, he has an entirely different kind of life than we do. He cannot die, and he lives with a new kind of organic glory that mortals simply don't have and couldn't contain. There's no mortality in him any longer. When we put our faith in Jesus, he gives us that life. So once again, there, what's the evidence in your life of that new life? Because if you've put faith in Christ, something inside of you must have changed. It had to, or you didn't meet Him. It was a fake conversion. If something hasn't changed, you don't know Him. Something's got to change. Okay, so let's look at some of the evidences of that new creation. The first one is we become alive to God. I want you to think about this. When we become alive to God, what does that mean? You become aware of God's presence in reality. God is no longer a concept or an idea, but a person who is knowable and utterly fascinating and captivating. He's not just a religion. How many of you have ever been in love? If you're married and you're sitting next to your spouse, you better raise your hand. Okay. 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 You've been in love. Okay. Do you remember when you first, it's funny we call it falling in love, right? Because most of the time when you fall, you get hurt. Well, I guess it works, doesn't it? So, when you're in love, you are captivated. You can't quit thinking about the person. You want to be around them. You want to know more about them. You, you want to talk to them. You want to ask them questions. You want to hear their story. Listen, if you've really met God, you become alive to God. He becomes fascinating to you. You want to know about Him. You're hungry to know about Him. Secondly, and this goes right in line with it, you receive a love for God you actually find that you begin to love God and you want to be with Him. You desire to please Him. A lover, as a lover would be toward his or her beloved, you make it your quest to bring joy and pleasure to God. You see, that's an evidence that you find yourself, you know, you're, you're not trying to be good so you can gain, you know, His approval to go to heaven when you die or so that, you know, He won't return when you're in the middle of doing bad stuff and you'll be left behind, which is some silly theology that some people have taught. But you're you're trying to please Him because you love Him. Something's been implanted in you and your desire to do righteousness, your desire to not live a certain way or do certain things is not because you're trying to jump through the hoops or impress people or impress God, but because you love Him and you want to bring Him pleasure and you want to bring Him joy. So you're like, what makes you happy? Because I love you. I look for lover's language in people. When they say they've met Christ or they're new in the church and I'm learning about Him, I'm not trying to judge. To hear, hear my heart. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to find out, do they know the Lord? And if I don't hear the language of someone who's met a person and loves that person, but it's all about you know going to church or doing being a good person or turning over a new leaf or trying to be self righteous or impressive, I'm, I'm finding myself going. Are you sure you met him? Are you sure you know him? Because we experience love for God. There's lovers' language. Thirdly, we develop a hunger for the knowledge of God. You desire to understand God through His Word. The Bible becomes a living book and not a dead historical book. You don't look at it merely as a critic, but you look at it to learn about the author, you desire to learn more about Scripture from others in your faith community. You become hungry to know the Word because they their love letters, their truth to you. They show you His nature, His character. They show you the pattern of others who've known Him and lived with Him and walked with Him and failed before Him and how He worked with Him. All of those things become real in Scripture. And so you, you begin to hunger. What, what, what's the pattern? How do I know Him? What's He like? It's in the book. Here's a big one. You are forgiven for your sins and your sin. You're forgiven. You know that you're forgiven. You've experienced the joy of a clean slate. You no longer try to justify or excuse your sin, but you seek forgiveness and a clear conscience. Confession of sin is not a bummer, but a joyous release. You just, Lord, I don't want, I I want it clear. I want clear air. Because being forgiven is life-changing, If you've ever carried the burden of your own sin for a long time, you know that to have that removed, to have the shame and the guilt of your past taken off of you, to no longer feel condemned, but to know that you're free and there's free air and that you're the beloved and you're, you're forgiven and cleansed and washed and it's all gone, that is a wonderful experience. And if you're carrying the weight of sin, the first thing you want to do is run and get it off you at the foot of the cross. You don't flee the presence of God. You run to the presence of God because you know it's there. Freedom from sin exists. I'm almost done. You receive a desire to be holy. Uh Uh-oh, holiness preaching. No, from the inside out, you want to change and become Christ-like. You desire to be whole, complete, and set apart for God. You don't want to live in subjection to shameful behavior any longer. Becoming holy is not about trying to be good enough to please God, but about seeing God in His beauty and His holiness and seeking to be compatible with Him. Holiness is the fruit of your love for God. You're not trying to be holy so you can gain brownie points. You are moving toward holiness from the inside out because you love him. And you're like, that stuff's dirty. And he's clean and pure and beautiful. You receive a love for people. Uh oh. You find that you're developing a compassion and a love for people. You understand that we are all basically the same. Listen carefully to this. And we're all in need of God's grace and kindness. The world around you becomes less and less about fitting people into categories based upon their race, their ethnicity, their socioeconomic class, their vocation, their party politics, etc., etc., etc. It becomes more about the common need we all have for redemption, love and grace. You recognize that we're all sinners in need of amazing grace. You quit looking at the world in terms of us versus them and categorizing people and and literally cutting off entire groups of people because you deem them unworthy of God's love or your attention or your love or your value. And you start to recognize that people are people, are people, are people. Yeah, they may be broken and they may be expressing their brokenness in a different category, in a different way, but they are ju- I'm just as needy for God's love and grace as they are. And if it's removed for even a second, I will do things unimaginably evil. Or at least I'll be self-righteous, which is unimaginably evil. And so when you are changed from the inside out, you love people. In spite of their stuff. And you start looking at the world in terms of how do I express that love toward people that are even hard to love. Because you know that's what Jesus did. Go read the Gospels over and over and over again. He's having an encounter with people that most of us would be ashamed to hang out with, or maybe some of us are those people. Thank God He loves us. And lastly, you you develop love for God's purpose for His world. You begin to understand that you were created for something more than just working, making money, getting stuff, having a family, and dying. You begin to see the world through a different set of eyes. You see God's purpose to reach the nations of the world with His good news and His new kingdom. You see that people are separated from God and bound by the evil behaviors known as sin, and you want others to experience the same powerful grace that you've experienced. You begin to ask God to use you to be a part of His great big world plan to redeem people and make a giant family to inhabit His recreated world to come. You endeavor to bring a small measure of that new world into every area you live and serve because you realize that the kingdom to come is not just to come, but it's here now present right now inside of you in seed form by the presence of the holy spirit and that every time you do what what is like jesus every time you show kindness Every time that you give a cup of cold water in his name, you pray for a sick person, you smile at somebody in the grocery store, you stop on the side of the road to help somebody, you treat your spouse with kindness when you could be angry. Every time you go countercultural, you go against the normal thing you want to do, and you act like Jesus would act, you're bringing an invasion of God's heavenly kingdom to earth at that moment, and things are changing and reverberating into eternity. When you see it, you see you develop a love for God's purpose in his world and you see things differently. You realize when you're a married person that God didn't just put you with that person just so you could have a mutual relationship together, so you could have sex and not feel guilty about it, so you could make money together, retire together, have grandbabies and die. And all those things are wonderful. But that's not why you live. There's a bigger purpose. There's a world out there that needs hope. All you have to do is look at the news. Look at how bad it is. Who's going to bring kindness and grace and hope into that? You, wow. me. And when we start to live with that view, we can change one life at a time. Awesome. Amen. And that's why we're created.